class meditation 30 years ago when I was a primary school teacher and the school was being inspected. Most of the bad things that have affected mankind or man is because an individual can't sit still alone in a room. Hello and welcome to Do Mind, a podcast taking a fresh and proactive look at mental well-being. We're talking to people about their approach to their own mental health, looking at what it takes to maintain this in a positive way and not viewing mental health as something that only happens when we reach those seismic breaking points. Whether this is practicing meditation, enjoying a healthier relationship with technology, exercising, spending more time in nature, cooking or time with family, we're talking about what it takes to find and maintain a happy mind. And what does that even mean? How does it make us feel and how does that change our lives? Our guests are entrepreneurs, wellness experts, politicians and musicians. Different worlds, but all willing to talk openly and honestly about something that has previously been overlooked. We're foregoing our usual studio setup today for a seat in a wood-panelled office in Westminster. And we're here to talk to Chris Ruane, an MP with the Welsh Labour Party and also the co-chair of the Mindfulness All-Party Parliamentary Group. What a mouthful. He first discovered meditation as a teacher in the 1980s, and he's been interested in that and mindfulness ever since. He set up free mindfulness classes for both politicians and their staff in Westminster. And today we're going to talk about his personal routine for maintaining a happy mind, how he dealt with the devastation of losing his seat in the 2015 elections after being in office for over 18 years, and his thoughts on the future of mindfulness. So now to Westminster. Right, Chris, thank you very much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. And as we do all of these interviews, I've got an icebreaker question, so I wanted to ask... Break the ice. Exactly, it needs breaking. (laughs) What what was the first thing you thought about this morning when you woke up? It's the same thing I think about every morning when I wake up, and I'll try and do the sound effect for you. It's my cup of tea. So I hope everyone there got, got a good audio decaffeinated. of Chris taking a big slurp of his decaffeinated tea. Yeah. So you wake up, you think about your cup of tea, then what? Absolutely. And then I get up and I meditate. How long do you meditate for? Depends. In the winter, when it was dark and I didn't want to get out of bed, and I wake up kind of really alive, go to the toilet, go back to bed, and then I would do a body scan. Okay. 40-minute uh, body scan. And now the lights, uh, the mornings are lighter, the nights are lighter. I wake up and I do some mindful movement and uh, sitting meditation between about 25 to 40 minutes. And on the way into work, which is a 20-minute walk, I practice gratitude. And I'm interested in that mindful movement. What does that mean? Well, I did start watching the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, YouTubes and, uh, and various other YouTubes. And you've got to move like this and move like that. But and for the listeners, it's it's a slow arm movement up slow and another arm slow movement, arm yeah. movement up. And Mark Williams' uh, audios. And then I decided I'd just move any way I wanted to move. And if it felt good, I would move that way. Do mindful movement from a standing position, from a... On my four paws, on my four paws, <laughs> down on my four paws, and, and uh, lying down as well. And I find it very, very relaxing and uh, something which is unusual for, for, for me. And you just move how your body feels like it needs uh, to be with, moved? With, with the breath. Okay. So whatever movement it is, is the breath in and the breath out. And it works for me. And how long have you been practising that in the mornings for? Uh, well, I've been practising mindfulness for 12 years in various forms, and body scans and uh, mindful movement and... Uh, City meditations and uh, uh, listening and, and what have you for about 11 years. 
how did you discover it? What were you like before? But was there a, a yeah. moment where well, you well, discovered but, it? But, uh, that was mindfulness, with all that comes with mindfulness, the, uh, you know, the philosophy and the, the outlook to life. I came across meditation 30 years ago when I was a primary school teacher. And the school was being inspected. It was the same school I went to when I was three. All right, old Billy Backwater. <laughs> and uh, the, I was deputy head and the school was being inspected. The staff got the jitters and the school nurse, the head called the school nursing and the staff practised meditation. It was just a tension and a release throughout the body and some breath. And it was the school nurse that was the teaching The school you. nurse that was teaching She wasn't, uh, she was the school nurse and she'd learnt it in that way. She wasn't a, a meditation practitioner. Uh, and it, it worked great for me. And then I had a class of 39 children and I took the practice back to them. And I would use it in a whole range of circumstances. The kids would come in from the playground in a wet and windy uh, winter and they'd be literally up in the air. And just by sitting and breathing for one or two minutes, they could regain that focus and that control and that concentration and that attention that is necessary if you're trying to learn. So I did that with the kids. I also used it at the end of physical education or sports. We'd, do, uh, we'd lie down and uh, relax the body. In fact, the parents, uh, I think it was the last lesson, two o'clock till three o'clock, the parents were waiting outside the classroom for the, for the kids. The kids would be walking out like that, spaced out, and the parents would say, what have you done? Yeah, in a great way. <laughs> in a great way. Uh, uh, and uh, so this was 30 years ago? 30, 30 years, years ago, ago, yeah. And I still get, in fact, uh, two of my nieces. I taught two of my nieces, and uh, one of them's heavily into uh, mindfulness meditation now. And how was it received at the time? So teaching this group of 30 school kids 30 years ago, was it quite unusual? Was it something that, you know, were you a bit of a kind of hippie teacher? Or? Well, I, I think the rest of the staff knew where it came from because they were in the same lessons as me. Yeah. But I was also, uh, I did school assemblies with up to 300 junior school children from 7 till 11. And I, I would incorporate some visualisations in, in, into that. So I would do a story from the Bible and get the kids to locate themselves, feel the hot sand on your feet, hear the flapping of the sails on the Lake Galilee, feel the cool wind cut off coming off, this, uh, off the lake onto your face. So, and I think my positioning them then by using a little bit of visualisation, the responses I got back from the kids, again, the, the attention was drawn by using not just the uh, listening skills, the aural skills, but uh, they could see themselves, visualise it themselves, they could feel the heat themselves and, and so on. The kids enjoyed it, and as I say, there are still some... We're into it 30 years later, including my own niece, Nadia. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and so you, you discovered meditation 30 years ago and then mindfulness... Mindfulness 12 years ago. I was helping my daughter, Sarah. She was 12 then. She's uh, 23 now and a primary school teacher like her father. And uh, she was doing comparative religions. Um, I thought I knew a little bit about Buddhism, so I was re reading up on it. And then I didn't realise the centrality of meditation to Buddhism. And uh, I started to download a few podcasts from the Spirit Rock in California... Gil Fronstel, uh, I say a few, I think I had about 300 on me, uh, on my iPod, the old iPod <laughs> in those days. And I'd listen to them on the way down on the train and uh, on the way back. And it was the meditations and it was the Dharma talks as well, the insight, I think, which, which comes through my, uh, mindfulness. And uh, I found it very, very beneficial. And then we had the expenses issue, which many uh, MPs were stressed out in. I used uh, mindfulness to, to help me through that. And around about 2012, I thought, it's done me a power of good over the past five years. I think I'll share it. I approached Professor uh, Richard Layard, who is a professor at the London School of Economics, professor on well-being and economics and mental health, because I knew he'd be well-connected. And he'd written a book called The Good Childhood, 
and happiness in new science. So he was well connected. He knew Professor Mark Williams in, uh, in Oxford University. And he invited Mark Williams and Chris Cullen in. And we met in July 2012 and met three times up to January 2013. Discussed how we should progress and what course we should follow and the length of it and tailor making it to a busy MP's life. And uh, we started our first lesson in January 2013 with 22 participants. Wow. And over the course of the last five and a half years, we've had 186 MPs and Lords who've, or, or peers who've come to our practice. We've also extended it out to, uh, to the MP staff. Okay. So 500 members of their staff have had mindfulness training. It just shows what useless managers we are. <laughs> <laughs> that our, stress, that our, our, our staff are still... Stressed Yeah, are, are so stressed there. All, you're all very enlightened that this is the sort of thing that you're promoting. Yeah, so we, we double-edged sword. Um, and and how, how often do you meet? What do the sessions consist of? And why do you think it's beneficial in, in government? We have mindfulness teachers who come in on a Tuesday and at one o'clock they train the MP staff. A half past five, there's a one-hour session, a continuing uh, meditation session, continuing mindfulness session for the people who've already been on the course. And then at quarter past seven, there's a third one, quarter past seven till half past eight, one and a quarter hours for MPs who are new to mindfulness and they follow Mark Williams' uh, Peace in a Frantic World course, which is beneficial, really highly beneficial. And the comments that come back, uh, that I think they're captured after every new cohort has gone through, and the comments come back about balance and equanimity, but also about the ability to focus and attention, to stay present. Many are more grateful. Gratitude is one of the lessons that we follow there. So there's a whole range of positives that have flown out of that. We learn about the brain, and it's amazing how many people don't know about how the brain works and the different functions, you know. As a species, we've sent man to the moon and back, we sent satellites out to the uh, outer galaxy, and uh, yet we don't know what goes on from ear to ear. Or from and we're ear, only just discovering uh, or from it. From here to here, yeah. yeah. We're only just discovering it. And the new technologies help, you know, with magnetic resonancing and uh, uh, the examination of chemicals, cortisol in uh, spitting bodily fluids, and yeah. uh, new, the whole field of neuroscience. So it's, it's really exciting what, what, what's coming out from there. And I think it should be science-led. I know that there's, it's in every, every wisdom tradition, but to make public policy, to make public policy, you need a science base. And I think that's what is really kind of the movement that we're seeing at the moment is meditation has gone from being this kind of spiritual experience that's often practised, you know, with candles, and, and I love that personally, but for lots of people, it doesn't resonate with them. So so I think using this science evidence-based approach, which is, it is possible to affect the makeup of your brain in certain ways with a very consistent mindfulness or meditation practice, mm. I think is, is really powerful. Absolutely, and that's the, uh, that's the way we stress it in our uh, lessons in Parliament. Lesson one is devoted to the science of mindfulness, there are no candles, no joysticks. There's very little mindful movement. Uh, it's just oak chairs in oak-panelled select committee rooms where people sit for one and a quarter hours and learn the gifts of the mind. Mm. And how, you know, you talked about it needing to be kind of evidence-based in order to influence policy. How would you like to influence policy to do with mindfulness? Are there kind of 
are there initiatives that you think we need to be working towards as a society you know does it start from a personal kind of you know awareness of these sorts of things you know we're starting to have more of a conversation perhaps that's where we start we say to uh, MPs that have been on the course you've experienced mindfulness and most MPs stay the length of the course you've experienced uh, mindfulness you've embodied mindfulness and I think when they're presented with the science when they're presented with a public policy that has worked in different other countries in prisons in their health services and what have you they're more open they're more open with the heart and they're more open with the mind to look at this practice which has benefited themselves and they want to spread it into the rest of society and Gandhi said be the change you want to see uh, you know not just uh, so I think if you've impo- if you've experienced it you'll want to pass it on for me mindfulness is a gift that was given to me that I want to pass on to my constituents and uh, to politicians and to the rest of the people in the UK and, and, and indeed beyond the world, uh, in the rest of the world. And talking about you kind of personally and, and the gift of, of mindfulness and meditation, I guess having pra- been practising for such a long time, it might be difficult to know the difference, but, you know, if you miss a couple of days, do you ever miss days practice? What's the difference in your mind when you're practising and when you're not? Uh, I do miss days practice. Uh, sometimes I miss two or three days practice, and that's usually the time I'm most stressed, I'm most busy, I'm most running around. But one of the lessons in uh, Mark Williams's book is the uh, kind of spiral of decline. The activities that nourish us and the activities that deplete us. And we made a list of all these activities that nourish us and deplete us. And to be aware that when you're in that frantic phase, you start to throw out the things that nourish you and you start to take on more of the things that deplete you. And it's a... Uh, it's very subtle, it you know, happens, it's only a decision here and a decision there, but you can feel yourself going down in that vortex, down and down and down until there's burnout at the end. So I'm acutely aware now of when I... Start am, on the spiral. When I start to Which is myself. really resonating with me. I, I yeah. think that, you know, spiral of decline is a really beautiful way of putting it because you think, I'll just make that one tiny, I'll miss that one tiny yeah. yoga class, it's not going to be a big deal, or I'll eat yeah. that quick thing rather than that nourishing thing. And it's all those little decisions that yeah. then lead to the... Yeah, so I'm aware of that, and the first thing I do is to go back to my practice. Mark Williams said, he said, it, uh, it's important to keep up the, the pace, the beat of your, uh, of your mindfulness, even if you can't make the 40 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever your usual amount of it, you, you, you do, even two or three minutes just to say, or just to feel mm. that you've done it that day, you've done it this day. And you don't have to argue the toss with yourself every morning. Uh, it's just something you yeah, do. it's just something you do. And the more automated, the more habitual, it's a good habit. And there are bad habits and there are good habits, and we learn about that on the course as well. And it's a good habit to get into. And John Kabat-Zinn, he came to Parliament, I think, in 2012-13, and that discussion I had with him, he's had it with others as well. He said when he was a young man in college in the 1960s, he saw somebody running along the street, not many clothes on, and... Uh, had a shorts and a t-shirt and he thought oh, he was chasing them there was nobody chasing them it was the beginning of the jogging movement right and you know people who uh, who wore plimsolls or trainers and shorts and were running around for no apparent reason you know they were a bit strange at first but now we have marathons in every city and town across the across the planet it's become normalized it's become part of uh, normal activity and he has this vision that he wants to see mindfulness meditation practice that follow the same route and I think that's well within our grasp especially if we can root mindfulness in into schools and make it a natural habitual positive 
intervention or part of your life that you do every day. And do you think that's the starting point, it's getting into education? I think the part, uh, that's what I said, I uh, taught in a Catholic primary school and the Jesuit dictum was, uh, give me the boy, I'm afraid. I think they meant girls as well, but they didn't actually say it. <laughs> give me the boy till the age of seven and I'll give you the man. I think the habits we set into kids early on. And I think kids are natural, oh, sorry, not kids, I think infants, I think babies are naturally mindful. I've been in my uh, surgeries with a mother and a toddler and I should have been listening to the man paying attention. <laughs> I was watching the baby and the baby got up and looked down and could see a dot of a bead on the table that me and all the mother could see. You know, that they, they just focus, they're not concerned about what happened last year because they weren't here <laughs> or even yesterday or they're not planning for the future. They're only concerned with what is before them in that any moment and they can see things that we can't see. Possibly schooling takes it out of them. Schooling and possibly, I think, technology. Is technology and, yeah. and uh, parenting in, in, in a difficult time when parents mm. have got to combat the social media, advertising, the power of adverts. Oh, Mackie D signs here, there and everywhere and uh, sweets at eye level at the supermarket. So they've got all of these pressures and it's difficult for parents and, or, or parent to bring their kid up with all of this distraction going on around them. And I think mindfulness can help them stay in that pure state. And it's interesting that in Bangor University and other universities around the world, they're actually looking at mindfulness uh, lessons for pregnant mothers. Okay. And, and not just pregnant mothers, the, 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 the spouse as well, or the, the partner as well. So the whole family unit before the baby is born is uh, experiencing mindfulness. So there's less stress on the man, uh, less stress on the baby, and the baby's born into a less stressful family. Mm. I think it's something like 10% of women suffer with postnatal depression. And I think I think it's the same figure for men as well. So if we, if we can reduce that depression, if we can create more positive emotions at that joyous time in a, in a family's life, then we're doing a power of good uh, for that individual family and indeed the whole society. And kind of drawing on the idea of, you know, that kind of baby being born mindful and then possibly, you know, education and society and social media, you know, almost distracting them, I think, from, yeah. from the mindfulness. What are, what's your personal approach to technology? It must be an incredibly busy man. Do you Are you on your phone all the time? Do you kind of limit your use of technology? Do you find it very distracting? He, he hides his iPad and his phone. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to notice. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, attention is the new gold, you know, and the best brains on the planet now are hoovered up from around the world by Google and Apple and Facebook and taken out to California. And the purpose of that is to grab your attention, to make your finger click. If your finger clicks, an advert opportunity arises. And, you know, when you think some of the greatest brains on the planet now have been hoovered up into that and they're having results... And do you fall victim to it? Do you? Do you... I, I, I am uh, more digitally disconnected than the younger generation. Mm -hmm. I think I'm uh, than my own generation as well. I don't think I've watched TV in, uh, in three or four days. It's because my wife, my wife's away at the moment, and she she controls a digi box. <laughs> I don't understand the technology. Uh, I, I am a victim to it, and increasingly, I, I was off for two years. I, I was an MP for eighteen years. I was off for two years and now I'm back. And I can see the difference within politics, the difference that social media has made within that short two-year time frame. 
So I was away from politics for two years and I wasn't, I didn't have a, a Twitter account, I didn't have a Facebook account. Now I've got one, I let my staff use it, I don't understand it myself, I just mm. I think I've got a bit of a story here, a bit of a photo. But I can see it's it's very, very seductive. Mm. And with all of these powerful brains, you know, seeing things inside you, yeah, knowing the, what part of my... And it, the, the, apparently it's supposed to have the same effect as, as heroin and cocaine. It's a addic- drug, yeah. Yeah, that addictive uh, effect on the same part of the brain. And it's good to see them getting a bit of a kicking mm. by select committees, these uh, uh, Apple and Google and Facebook, and they're winding their necks in now. They, they, they've had a free run, free reign for 10 years, and we've thought... It was only the positives that flowed from it, but we've seen the impact on Brexit, on uh, on the American elections, on micro-advertising, that there is a dark side to this, and they need to put their house in order. Yeah, and I think think change is coming, because I think, you know, as the conversation continues where people talk about, you know, depression resulting from social media, comparisons, young people feeling incredibly lonely despite being, you know, one of the most connected generations of all time. So I think, I, I hope... That, that change will come. Um, I, was, I was over in uh, Finland, Finnish parliament, at Easter, and whilst I was there, I was taken to a Steiner school, a Steiner community, actually, Steiner Farm, Steiner School, Steiner Hospital, just on the outskirts of, uh, of Helsinki. Uh, no, sorry, it was Stock- Stock- I went to Stockholm, uh, Tallinn, and Helsinki. This was in Stockholm, on the outskirts of uh, Stockholm in Sweden. It was a Steiner community. And the man who took me around said that most of the people, or many of the people, in California that are involved in the uh, in these new digital companies send their kids to Steiner schools mm. they keep their kids away away from devices away from the devices because they know the harm that it can do and yet it's been perpetrated on uh, our children on our grandchildren and my daughter tried to give it up my daughter's a student in Leeds and she tried to give it up for four weeks in January and the what was she giving up social media social uh, her, uh, her her iPhone Wow. So uh, for four weeks, she got a flip phone for mm-hmm. four weeks and she uh, disconnected. She could only take, take uh, phone calls and she said, uh, you know, this, this, the pressure, what are you doing that for? What are you doing that for? And from her own peer group and uh, the pressure she felt herself. Yeah. And when she did eventually reconnect, she took things off that she didn't think she needed. Yeah. So it's, it, uh, I think we have dry January in, in Parliament, believe it or not, and I've, uh, I've been doing it as part of my mindfulness practice for the past five years. I think we should have a disconnect uh, December. Yes, it's a great idea. <laughs> I think it's about finding a kind of a mindful relationship with technology where you yeah. can use it when you need to, but you're not driven by it and you're not kind of addicted, I suppose. It should um, be the servant and not the master. Exactly. Um, and I wanted to ask you about mindfulness specifically in the world of you know politics or not even specifically politics, kind of busy, high-pressure jobs in general. And what do you think mindfulness has to offer for people who, as you said, you had to kind of tailor some of these sessions to a very, very busy MP's working life. What do you think it offers specifically for people who, you know, work in high-pressure situations, have very little time? Why would you recommend mindfulness to them? Well, I wouldn't just recommend it to them. I'd recommend it to everybody, really. At least I have uh, experienced it. Mindfulness isn't for everybody at all points in their lives. In fact, I think if you go on a, a course run by a trained, and I would recommend that you only go on a course run by a trained mindfulness teacher, that they they ask you those questions. Are you going through a particularly difficult time at the moment? You know, they, they screen you out, and because it might not be right for you. If you go in a position of desperation, that might not be the right time for you. So I, I would recommend it for everybody to try, and it might 
It might work for them, it might not. But as I say, people in highly stressed professions and highly stressed jobs, I think it has particular benefit for it. It has in your, and it's not just in your professional life, but in your personal life as well. So you might be unemployed, you might be retired. It's, so it's still relevant. But I think if you're making decisions as an executive in a company or a minister or even a, a prime minister or a lowly backbencher, then th those decisions could affect millions of people. And it's much better to make that position from a position, uh, make that decision from a position of equanimity and balance than it is from when you're off balance. You know, those gifts can be taught. And it's much better if, if, if you have the, the, that ability just to sit still. I think Blaise Pascal, I can't remember the exact quote, French philosopher Blaise Pascal, a mathematician, said uh, back 300 years ago that most of the bad things that have affected mankind or man is because an individual can't sit still alone in a room. And I think that's increasingly so in a 24-7 society when we're digitally connected, when we've got the advertising, when we've got 24-7 news, that our ability to gain, gain that balance, that perspective, is, 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 uh, is diminished. Mm. I think mindfulness can give it, give, it, give it you back. So you're making the right personal and you're making the right professional decisions. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think you mentioned when I came in that I was sat in the chair that Goldie Horn had been sat in <laughs> yesterday. Um, and I know she's been working on a programme that you kind of met with her yesterday to talk about. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, an amazing woman. Uh, Mind Up is her uh, programme, which she's been uh, implemented 2003. So for 15 years, she's been uh, training trainers, training teachers, uh, who've then gone on to train pupils. And the figure she gave yesterday, which was astounding, is that 200,000 teachers had been trained and 6 million children had been trained. I mean, she should get a, a Nobel Prize for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the ripple effect of that is probably far greater. Yeah. And when you look at what employers want these days, and mindfulness is not just about employment, but even from an employment or an economic perspective, they want their big complaint is that you know they've got twelve, thirteen O levels and or GCSE, sorry, and four <laughs> or five A old. <laughs> Four or five A-levels, they've got a first and classics from Oxford, but they still haven't got that emotional intelligence. And that's where they're looking for stuff above and beyond. And do you think mindfulness helps with emotional intelligence? I think it helps with emotional intelligence. In fact, I've got a little list here, as Peter Lilly once said. I think I've got a list here. And it was from the World Economic Forum. And the skills... Uh, so these are like captains of the universe. The skills that uh, modern economy wants. And they include emotional intelligence, they include creativity, uh, they include a whole range of... Uh, I can't actually find it now, but it's a, uh, it's, it's a list of ten activities that they're looking for, which aren't actually formally taught in specific curriculum, but can be taught, I think, in, uh, th th through mindfulness. One of which is emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, yeah, and uh, you know these are these are great, great assets to have, mm. but we're not teaching them to our kids. And we've talked a little bit about um, some of the teachers that you kind of recommend or have, have studied yourself. If someone wanted to kind of go away and 
educate themselves a little bit more what do you read what do you listen to who would you kind of who would you recommend to our listeners well I, I would recommend Peace in a Frantic World by Mark Williams because it's the course that we followed his YouTube's uh, here we go digital uh, is uh, lessons uh, are available on YouTube and they start with a, th- a three minute breathing space some of them are five minutes long the longest there is the body scan which is 14 minutes and you can string some of these uh, different activities together to make it a 40 minute session so uh, they're bite sized they're accessible they're delivered beautifully by Mark he's got a lovely speaking voice and uh, it's mindfulness based cognitive therapy so it comes uh, with advice on the cognition, on the actual learning of relearning of gratitude. I've been keeping a gratitude diary now for five, six years, and it's amazing. Do you do that in the evenings? I do it walking into work. It's a 20-minute walk. I use my fingers to count things I'm grateful for. And once or twice a week, I actually physically record it. Yeah. Uh, on my iPad. <laughs> I have some criticism. You should be using a gold-plated, uh, flowing... Beautiful gratitude journal. <laughs> with, with, yeah, with a gold-plated nib and uh, yeah. uh, Indian ink. But I'm on the train and... Uh, Sometimes technology is useful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and what difference do you think the gratitude journals made? And, and I'm a very disorganised people. I've never, a person, I've never kept a diary in my life. And I've, as I say, I've been keeping it through some critical times, including when I lost my uh, job, uh, when I failed to get re-elected in 2015. And the first thing I did, I knew at half past two in the morning that I didn't get uh, re-elected. By half past ten, I was on the on my gratitude diary, listing all of the things that I'm grateful for. It's a big shock to lose. I wasn't expected to lose. I had my health. I had a, a lovely wife, two lovely kids big uh, friendship ring, I was a positive, I had an extended family. You know, I, I, All of these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely blessed, even in that dark hour for me, and they say there's nothing as X as an XMP. Well, I minute mean, you're up here, you have your headed notepaper, you can commission uh, research, you can have meetings with ministers, you can push an agenda forward, and the next thing, you're unemployed. But it helped me, the gratitude and mindfulness helped me to uh, maintain my balance in that critical period. And now you're back. And now I'm back, thanks to my mentor <laughs> and my patron, uh, Conservative Prime Minister, who was prepared to forego her majority to allow me a Labour MP back into Parliament. And on that note, thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome. Thank you thank for you. coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Do Mind as we take a fresh and proactive look at mental well-being. Please subscribe to the podcast on your listening platform of choice. And for more information or to get in touch with us, please visit domind.co. We'd love to hear from you.